of Malachi. Uh, today, we're going to sit together under the authority of God's word as delivered through the Hebrew prophet uh, Malachi. So I'm going to, after you found it, I'm going to pray and ask God's help as we look into his word and then we'll um, proceed. Uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, we, your people, come before you asking you that you would feed us this morning as the sheep of your flock, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see wonderful things in your word, uh, that you would lift up your son, Jesus Christ, that we might be drawn to him afresh and anew today, seeing his glory and his greatness. Help us, help me today to uh, speak words that are helpful to these, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Guard my tongue from what is unhelpful, uh, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> uh, few things are more destructive to the health of a congregation than conflicts over worship. Uh, you have heard about, or perhaps you've been involved in a church that fought the worship wars, and uh, you know many of the issues that are involved. Here are a few of the issues involved. Hymns or choruses. Uh, jackets and ties or button-downs and dockers, organs or guitars. Shall we be led by amateurs or professionals? Um, some churches hire their musicians to accompany them regardless of the musician's faith commitment. They just want somebody good to lead them. Um, should we sing with hymn books or screens? Should we sit in pews or chairs? Should we worship in sanctuaries or auditoriums? Should we have a praise team or a choir? What about drama, videos, candles, incense? Should we have instruments at all? All these issues have been debated back and forth and others. If you've been around the church for a while, uh, uh, when I was going through that list, you probably had an immediate preference or opinion. I mentioned two options and one came to your mind as the only biblical answer. Uh, most people, I don't know if you knew this or not, most people favor musical styles that were popular when they were teenagers. I think about that everybody, every time somebody tells me their favorite song is the Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> um, and, and, or you're drawn to music that you remember from the church when you were young. If you've been away from the church for a while, you come back, you want to hear what you remember was there when you were a kid. Uh, something else that I know that's true about you, your worship preference, is that your presence, your participation in our church is closely connected to whether you like or at least you can tolerate our Sunday meetings and what we do and how we do things. Uh, I read this week about a survey that sought to determine how people make church choices and the top four factors, they were all equal, near equal in importance, that people take an account into looking for a new church are their doctrine, what the church believes, uh, the quality of the preaching, the authenticity of the church members and the pastors, and number four, the worship style of the congregation. Uh, it's a remarkable sign, it's a remarkable sign of God's grace that we have not fought the worship wars in our church. Um, not really even a little bit. We are a multi-generational congregation and everybody bends. Now, you're probably thinking that you bend more than other people uh, do, but everybody else thinks they bend more than everybody else, too. People ask me, what style do you sing uh, at your church? And, and I say, we're in transition. We've been in it for 10 years. 
And we're still growing and we're still changing. And we're well led in that effort by our song leaders and our instrumentalists. Uh, did you notice this morning that when I was listing the uh, battlefields in the worship wars, that all of the issues that I mentioned are secondary issues? Did you notice that? Uh, they're important issues. They deserve careful thought. Uh, but they're all secondary. If you're here this morning, you're not used to the church scene, and I was going through that list, you might not have known even what some of those options were, and you might be wondering, why would anybody talk about those things? I mean, it seems strange if you're not exposed to those discussions. Uh, what kind of songs and what we sing them with or to what, what we wear when we worship, they're all secondary issues, if not tertiary issues. So uh, that leads to the question, if they're all secondary, what's primary? What's of greatest importance? What's of first importance when it comes to worship? Um, we have before us this morning a passage in the book of Malachi uh, that can help us answer those questions. Our Bibles are open to uh, Malachi. We started this last week, and you remember that, that I talked about it as a, as a people of, uh, of God who have a significant history uh, with God. They've received promises from God through Abraham that they would be his, God's special people. Uh, they have been led out of Egypt already by Moses and been given God's word. Their ancestors have been uh, led by judges and kings and they have preached to by prophets, been preached to by prophets. And, and they have been carried off into exile by their enemies and God has graciously returned them to their land. But now they're struggling. They're a struggling people. Uh, they have this great history behind them, and, and the prophets proclaimed that when they got back to the land, things would be really good. Things are not good for them. Uh, they're, they're poor, they're marginalized, they feel forgotten, and they've concluded, if God doesn't care about us, then we really don't care about Him either. And, and that's why in chapter 1, God reminded them of what? His long-term love. And as some of you know what it's like to think about uh, to wonder about whether or not God really cares. Um, the questions that these people had about God's love, now we find, are showing up in the way they worship. Frankly, their worship stunk. Uh, I want to look at the text. Let's see how. Malachi 1, 6-14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With, with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. 
My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you, you profane it by saying of the Lord's temple, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations." Uh, these are people that are struggling with worship. Uh, uh, so much so that God wants them to stop. Oh, just shut the doors of the temple and stop worshiping me. Gene uh, Merrill, one of my seminary professors, wrote a fine book on Malachi. And he says that, that two things mark their worship. They are offering inferior sacrifices and they're worshiping with an insolent, insolent, disrespectful spirit. No worship would have been better than what they were offering. And this is a passage that gets to the heart of what it really means to worship. If we get this right, the secondary issues will, will come about. Uh, in fact, you can't talk about the secondary issues well until you get the primary issues down. And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about what worship is based on this text this morning. I have uh, four statements derived, I, I trust, from the text about worship. If, if you're taking notes, they all begin with the statement, worship is... And we're going to go through these four things, and along the way, I might take one or two tangents uh, to talk about what we're looking at relates to what we do here in our own church. Uh, let's begin here, shall we, this morning? Worship is, first of all, a reflection of our relationship with God. Worship is a reflection of our relationship with God. Now, before we look actually at the text, I want to talk to you about how not to read this passage. You might be inclined, this is how some people read the whole Bible, you might be inclined to, to read this passage and conclude that God has a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of relationship with the people in Israel. Like, uh, as if uh, the people, all, what they need to do is they need to bring God good sacrifices, and if they bring God good sacrifices, He'll be kind to them. Um, you might think that on the basis of verse uh, verse 8, or maybe verse 9. Let's look at verse 9. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will He accept you? You know, if, if you bring the good offerings to God, He'll accept you. Uh, they apparently think that, verse 13, when they say, oh, God's table is a burden. It's just not worth worshiping. We're not getting anything out of it. A lot of people approach the Bible that way. In fact, they approach God that way. Uh, in ancient cultures, this is the way that it was practiced. Many people believed that the gods needed to be appeased, that the gods were capricious characters. They were um, selfish and lazy. And you had to convince the gods to do things for you, to bless you. So uh, you would get a little idol and you'd put it in your house and you'd feed the god. You'd put food in front of it. 
And you dress the God, you put clothes on it. And believe it or not, you know, God, that God might get a little uh, lonely or bored in your house. So you would take that God with you on trips, maybe actually to visit another God that that God might like to see. They actually did that with their statues, took them traveling. Um, and that's how God, if you treated them kindly enough, the gods would be nice to you in return. And this is how some people read the Old Testament sacrificial system. That people that worship in the Old Testament, uh, they were worshiping God in order to get God on their side. Um, have you ever read the story, The Lottery, by Shirley Jackson? It was first published in 1948 in the New Yorker magazine. It's a staple of high school literature classes. In the lottery, it opens on a beautiful sunny day in June in a small town. It could have been anywhere in the Midwest, the United States. And the whole town has gathered together and in the town square for an assembly of some kind. You're wondering about that. All the men go up to a box and they reach in their hand and they pull out a slip of paper. Every man in the town with his, representing his family. And, and a guy by the name of Bill Hutchinson takes out the one sheet of paper in the box with a dot on it. They, they put that back in the box and then all Bill's family comes and stands before the box and one at a time, Bill, his wife, and his, their three children draw pieces of paper out of the box. And this time, it's Bill's wife who draws the marked paper. And the whole town gathers around her, and just as the story ends, they start throwing stones at her. And one of the most famous lines from that story is, Lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. Uh, this is an outrageous story. The people who read The New Yorker were horrified by this. There, there would be a town pictured in the United States in the 1940s that would practice human sacrifice. But the people were going to stone Bill Hutchinson's wife so that the, the, the harvest would be plentiful. It's a horrible thing to think about. But it's the way most of the people in the Old Testament era lived and thought about the gods. And, and it's the way that some people think about worship today. Um, do you have that attitude? Worship is about putting in your time or meeting the requirements. And if you do your part, God should do His part. If you attend church or you read your Bible or you pray, God will protect you against evil. In fact, um, uh, if you do your part, God actually owes you something because you've worshipped Him. God owes you obedient children or a nice job or a a great basketball game on Friday, especially if you do your devotions every day. God owes you at least, you know, 10 points in your game on Friday, right? Um, Or uh, God owes you a husband or God owes you a wife. Do you worship because that's what good people do and God is nice to good people? That's the way most religions work and that's the way the most religious people work. And you can tell if you're thinking that by what happens to you if you don't have obedient children or you do have an awful job or you don't have a husband or wife or you play rotten on Friday at your game. See, the Old Testament was written in this sort of environment. I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. But that's not the way that the Bible defines a person's relationship with God. Our relationship with God is not something that we earn through service or sacrifice. It's something that God gives us. We respond to His initiative. You can see that in the text because God begins by comparing Himself in verse 6 to a father. I am your father. You are my son. 
Now, everyone knows a son is supposed to honor his father, but that relationship is marked by love, too. See, it was in the beginning of the book, God says to Malachi, the people, uh, through Malachi to the people, I love you. I love you. That comes first before his uh, instructions about worship. God is a sense saying to the people in this, in this chapter, I love you. Uh, and is your worship matching what it's like to be a beloved son? Is that how your worship, does it line up to that standard of my love for you? The Bible actually always works this way. Uh, we always live in light of what God has done for us. See, the right way to think about worship is not that we're coming to do our time or to perform our penance or to meet the requirements. We're sons and daughters gathered together to celebrate what our Father has done. Uh, Have you ever been to an anniversary party or a birthday party uh, for someone uh, uh, who reaches this grand milestone, you know, some some big number that you go. Um, I, I've been to a few of these events. Actually, one of them that sticks out in my mind uh, happened just a couple of years ago. Uh, Kathy and I were guests at Bill and Hershey, uh, Bill and Francis Hershey's 60th anniversary party. We were uh, privileged to be invited. Um, actually, they just had another anniversary a couple of weeks ago. I think 62 now. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it, we were we were there, and and everybody, the, the relatives were there, and 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 friends from long time ago were there. We were in the room before Bill and Francis arrived, and we were just so excited to be there because soon was going to come in this man and this woman that were dearly loved, and they were going to come in the room, and we were going to clap for them and celebrate this grand occasion with them. Uh, it, 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 was a, it was a delight to be there. And actually, for me, the best part, uh, Bill spoke for a few minutes, just off the cuff. And one of the things he said to them, everybody there, he said, I want you to know the thing that's made a difference in my life, in our lives, is that Jesus Christ is our Savior. I was wonderful. He presented the gospel at his own anniversary party. That was great. See, the joy of that celebration flowed from the fact that we knew them that we were related to them, that we had a relationship with them. I did not go to the party because I was hoping at the end of it, Bill would loan me 50 bucks. I went to celebrate with them what, what, what Bill and Francis had, had, had accomplished, God's grace in them. See, the joy of worship or the point of worship is that we are related to God, His sons and daughters, and we're gathering together to celebrate what we have. You don't worship to get God on your side. If you're here to do that, it's not going to work. Let's talk about what else this passage says about worship. First, worship flows. It's a reflection of the relationship that we have with God. Secondly, worship is a response to the greatness of God. Worship is a response to the greatness of God. Worship flows from our relationship with God, but, but it, it's heart, it's a response to God's greatness. In many ways, verse 11 is the center of this passage. It's, it's uh, very important. Look what it says. It says, My name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 14 says something similar. 
for I in the middle it says um, don't bring your crippled uh, sacrifices for why not for I am a great king says the Lord Almighty and my name is to be feared revered among the nations God's greatness is the most important issue to us when we gather together we come to declare God's greatness verse 5 of chapter 1 says great is the Lord Almighty among the nations that's what we're to declare God's greatness is the lens by which we evaluate everything that happens in our service. We are not wed primarily to a style of worship. We are committed to this principle that every song we sing and and how we sing it must in some way magnify the greatness of God's love or His wisdom or His kindness or His triunity or His power or His justice or His presence. He's our primary thought. He's our chief goal. This is the center of worship. Everybody who is a worshiper in our congregation should agree. This is why we gather to respond to God's greatness. Now, verse 11 actually contains a truth that would explode the mind in Malachi's audience if they uh, caught it. I want to explain it to you because it's, it's so important. Verse 11 says, My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name. Under the law of Moses, it was a command. These Israelites knew this. These Jews knew this, that they were to worship God at one place, the temple in Jerusalem. No other place was set aside was, was acceptable for worship. And you certainly could not worship God with an altar or with incense, with offerings in, in a Gentile land outside of Israel. Worship had to take place in the temple. In fact, these people, their descent, uh, ancestors had been exiled from the land because they didn't follow this principle. They were worshiping on uh, idols on mountains other than at the temple. They were carried off into exile. They came back to the land and the exile cured them of their idolatry. They never again worshipped any other gods and they did not worship except at the temple. They knew this for sure. There was one place for worship. But here now God says, my name's going to be great among the nations and everywhere is going to be a place of worship. How can that be? Well, I think this text is pointing us forward to the radical transformation that Jesus Christ brought. We could spend a lot of time talking about this. I'll only touch on it here this morning. See, the temple was the meeting place in the Old Testament between God and His people. It was, in essence, the temple was God's house. And if you wanted to meet with God, you went to God's house. And in order to meet with God in His house, He demanded that you bring a sacrifice. Now, the Bible describes God as infinitely holy, but we human beings are infinitely unholy. We fail. We have fallen short of God's perfect standards. And we were originally created to walk with God in perfection, but we have each gone our own way, Isaiah says. We've rejected God's authority over us. And it makes us dirty, defiled, polluted in a holy God's sight. Our Sin, our rebellion against God is like a disease and God is infinitely healthy. So if you wanted to go to God's house and meet with God, you needed to bring a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to cover you, to cover your sin. 
Um, uh, those sacrifices were, were never really sufficient. They had to be made over and over again. But every time you went, you had to bring this blood sacrifice to cover yourself, to, to cover your sin if you wanted to meet with a holy God. Now, when Jesus comes, he says to people that he is the ultimate real temple. He's the ultimate meeting place between God and man. And he also announces that he is the ultimate sacrifice. John says of him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He offered himself on the cross as our perfect substitute. Uh, A lamb's blood cannot really wash away sin, but Jesus' blood uh, uh, makes us cleansed completely, totally really, finally, from sin. And the Bible offers this cleansing to all who will receive it. Um, Turn to God from whatever is satisfying you, you think is satisfying you now, and trust in what Christ did on the cross. He died there, but He is now risen and is exalted in heaven and receives all who come to Him. And what would have stunned Malachi's audience if they understood it, and what stunned the first century Jews is that God, through Jesus Christ, made it possible for all people, not just descendants of Abraham, but all people to receive life, to know God, to meet God, to worship the one true God. That is astounding. God is great because His kindness extends around the world to all sorts of people. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. This is the great extent of God's love to the ends of the earth. And when we gather together, we respond to this great, great love. Now, I promised a tangent or two. Um, Here's a brief one. It's something that I I mentioned mentioned from the pulpit before. Um, It's about worship styles again. Some people speak as if they need some sort of worship style in order to feel close to God um, they need to sing old gospel songs or they need to sing uh, uh, warm, intimate praise choruses and they just don't feel close to God if they don't sing those types of songs. I confess that as a service planner, I, I pick out the music that we sing. Um, I know what songs those are that can produce this feeling and I know how we can arrange them so that I can encourage or prompt those intimate feelings. But musical style, regardless of your preference, is not our mediator. It is not what takes us into the presence of God. It's not an organ that takes us into God's presence. It's not a guitar. It's not an a cappella repeat for the third time of the chorus of It Is Well With My Soul that takes us into God's presence. It's Jesus that takes us into God's presence. He is the mediator. He's the one who makes it possible for us to meet with God. And how great, how great, how great a mediator He is. So worship is a response to the greatness of God. Let's move on to number three here. Worship is a reforming discipline. Worship is a reforming discipline. Now, uh, by that, what I mean is that uh, when we follow what God has said in His Word about worship, it changes us. It reforms us. Um, Do you wonder why God was so particular about the type of sacrifices that He has demanded? Uh, um, Why was He so particular about not having any sick or crippled animals? Only bring me the best from your flock, God says. Doesn't that sound a little bit like you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours? Um, You need to bring something really good so that I can be nice to you. Why did God demand their best? 
Why did he put these strict uh, uh, requirements on their worship? Uh, that sort of specificity continues in some regards in, in the New Testament. Uh, God tells us specifically what we're supposed to do when we gather together. Uh, one of the things that Paul wrote is that we're to continue uh, to devoting ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. So when we gather together, we read God's Word aloud. Public reading like that doesn't fit into some other models of worship. Um, if, you tend, if you attend, some churches don't, don't share our common conviction about that. Um, you might be more likely to see a drama or watch a video than hear God's word read. Um, we've used drama, we've used videos in our church, but, but we, because God demands that we read scripture when we meet together. Why is God so particular about this? I think... He's particular because the, the practice of worship itself transforms us. It changes us. Listen, the care with which you participate in worship reflects who you think God is. I'll say that again. The care with which you prepare for and participate in worship reflects who you think God is. And God demands that we care about worship because God demands that we care about Him. See, God's stringent demands for worship are for our own good. They're part of the transformational process. Worship is hard work. It demands effort and sacrifice. And when you make those sacrifices, you are actually being changed by those sacrifices. Uh, let me illustrate maybe what, I, what I'm talking with you uh, about here. I want you to imagine that you're sitting on your front porch and you're watching some neighborhood kids ride, they're riding their bike up and down the uh, sidewalk in front of your house. And while they, they go by, you hear a sound that's very familiar to you. It sounds familiar to you because you used to do that same thing to your bicycle. Um, uh, I don't know if kids actually do that today. Uh, they probably have some battery-operated gadget to make that sound. But if you wanted to, um, it, uh, it, way back in the last century, if you wanted to make your bicycle sound really cool, you got a clothespin and a baseball card, and you stuck it to your bicycle so that when the spokes spun around, they'd hit that bicycle and make it sound like a, just an awesome engine, Right? Well, you're seeing these kids ride back and forth and you're hearing them, hearing that bicycle make that same sound. You're so intrigued. You go out and you look and you look at their, their, at their uh, bicycle tire and you see there at the end of the, the, the uh, uh, clothespin a 1914 Babe Ruth rookie baseball card. <laughs> there are 10 known in existence in the world. The last one sold for $570,000. Um, and... <laughs> card is worth a lot of money. So you say to this child, son, you need to know how to treat this card. Don't ride your bike with this baseball card. Put it in a safe. Lock it away. Keep it out of the sun and keep it away from your bicycle. Uh, you are setting up strict demands for how a baseball card should be uh, treated. With God to these people with his strict demands, he is saying to them, I am worth it. I am more valuable than any sheep that you have. Knowing me, serving me is better than anything else you will do with your life. 
And when you make those sacrifices, you are reinforcing in your life this truth that God is to be revered. Every time you go, in Malachi's day, you go to your flock and you look at all the sheep there and you're looking for the best. And every time you pick up the best one, the one that's worth the most, and take it to the temple, you are saying, God is greater than the best things that I have. Um, God's to be revered whenever you make the hard sacrifices of worship. Here, here's another example, I suppose. Um, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what, to go to, what time to go to bed on Saturday night, but I think you should come to church on Sunday well-rested. Um, God's worth your attention. So go to bed early enough on Saturday night. You'll be out with your friends, and, and they'll think it's weird when you tell them you want to go home at 9 o'clock. Um, uh, but do it anyway. You, you'll, you'll be at your house and you'll be flipping through the channels and some movie will come on and you'll think, oh, that looks interesting. Um, and you'll decide not to watch it so you can go to bed. Um, you are, when you make that decision to go home at nine or to go to bed early, you are making two statements. Number one, you're saying God is greater than any Saturday night activity that I might be involved in. And you're also reaffirming that in your life. He is worth the efforts necessary to worship. I have a suggestion for you this afternoon. Um, why don't you spend some time this afternoon, maybe you want to do this with your family or your small group or at lunch with your friends, um, ask this question, what do I need to do in order to make sure that Sunday morning is the best part of my week? What do you need to do in your life in order to make sure that Sunday morning is the best part of my week? What do you need to do so that when you get here, you're at the peak stage of readiness for your worship? Have you ever thought about that question? Um, I, have, I have a couple suggestions here for you. Why don't you go to bed early? Get things ready on Saturday night before you go to bed. Prepare on Sunday morning by reading your Bible or listening to some music. Avoid soul-killing things before you come to church. Don't surf the internet before you come to church. Or watch television or movies. Or some of you need to lay off reading the newspaper before you come to church. Or playing video games. Real worship requires effort and sacrifice and focus. Now, just one little brief tangent. I think there are probably some of you in the room that are thinking to yourself, Pastor, I read this passage in Malachi 1, and it says that, we're supposed, that these people were supposed to bring our best to church. And I have heard the argument over time that, that this means that when you come to church, you better dress your best. Have you ever heard the argument? Maybe you've used it. Think about how you dress to go to the White House to visit the president. That's how you should dress to go to church. The argument goes sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's as if the, the, uh, the, the translation of Malachi 1 from the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were supposed to bring their best sheep, so you're supposed to wear your best wool suit to church. That's how that works. Everybody brings the sheep in some form to church. I, I would make that argument. I, I would be really happy to make that argument about what you wear to church if at any point in time the Bible made that argument. 
I, I could, I suppose, just as well make the argument that um, we need to have the best possible building in order to worship God. So if, if we're going to build something someday, um, it should be the most beautiful, but we give every penny you have to have the best building because God deserves our best. So if we, if and when we build something, it's going to be the Taj Mahal of Millersville because that's how God wants to worship. I would make that argument if the Bible ever did make that argument about buildings. We should only have the best-looking people lead our service. <laughs> I'm going to have to resign. It, 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 we should, because God is the best. You're laughing. I should resign and do what some of you do. But no, so um, uh, we should only have the best-looking people do uh, lead worship because God is the best and He's worthy of our best. I would make that argument if the Bible made that argument. See, in 1 Peter 1, it talks about worshiping God with reverent fear or living before God in reverence. And you know what 1 Peter 1 is about? Loving each other, living a holy life, uh, rejecting the way, the empty way of life of your ancestors who didn't know God. See, God demands that you come with, with the best possible attention. Do what you, you can to make sure that Sunday morning is the best part of your week. And the efforts that you pour forth into that will transform you because meeting with God is the best thing you can do. All right. Now, um, another tangent I'll just mention. Uh, Since real worship requires effort and sacrifice and focus, that should help you, I think, uh, confront a common idea we have about worship. We sometimes think that worship is just supposed to happen or that you're just supposed to feel it, and we evaluate services based on whether or not we feel worship, and, and just feeling it is the opposite of effort, right? You shouldn't have to work to just feel something. What are you supposed to do if you don't feel like worshiping? If the alarm goes off on Sunday morning, you think, oh, here we go. Or you walk in the auditorium and you think, I wonder how bad it's going to be this week. Um, Can I tell you, that's a completely normal feeling to not feel like worship. Um, Little kids don't know how to treat valuable baseball cards and sinful people don't know how to love God naturally. It's not natural. It's not natural to revere God. It's not natural to think uh, with joy about his greatness. It takes a miracle for God uh, uh, in our lives for us to love him. So if you don't feel like it, ask God to change you. Here's something that I I pray all the time. God, my affections for you do not match the reality of your greatness. And this is just one way that my heart falls short of your standards. So please change my heart so that they match what I know your word says about you. Can I tell you frankly, that's how I begin my preparation for worship almost every Sunday. God, I don't feel like doing this, but you are worthy of my thoughts and affections today, so change me. So this text tells us one more thing about worship, and I'm just going to mention it, and then we'll be finished. Number four, worship is a rehearsal for God's worldwide acclaim. Worship is a rehearsal for God's worldwide acclaim. I come back to that four, that word four in verse 14 uh, in the middle. For I am a great king and my name is to be feared among the nations. So that day is coming. 
That day when, when, when God will be acclaimed as great by how all the world is coming. It's coming someday. And we gather every Sunday in preview and preparation for that day that we're going to join together in this worldwide acclaim. That's the reality that is to be. And when we gather together, we anticipate that great day. Are you glad to embrace and to celebrate that truth of that day when God will be declared as great by all peoples? That day is one of the reasons that we worship on this day. Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we think about these uh, disobedient people who... Uh, struggled in in so many ways. They struggled to understand your care. They struggled to live out your love for them in their lives. Um, They struggle where we struggle and we see ourselves in this chapter. Uh, Father, we are inclined at times to think that attending services or or to gathering with God's people is is empty and is contemptible and is not worth the sacrifices. Oh, Father, I pray that you would so exalt your name in our midst that we would celebrate with joy your greatness. Thank you that you do not cast us out when we come to you and ask for your transformation, that, that, that you um, uh, accept us as we crawl toward you and you change us. Father, I uh, am mindful of what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians about an unbeliever that was gathered together with, with the church and how that unbeliever should, should leave the church saying, wow, God is in your midst. And I pray that you would make us a sort of church that would, would have guests who would come and say, these people love Christ. Make us that sort of church. Make us that sort of, those sort of worshipers we pray. Do that because your name is great and it is to be feared among the nations. Do that for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.